Welcome to the Future Strategist Podcast with James Miller. My name is Glad Sipurski, and I'm also a professor, um, professor in the history of science at Ohio State University. I specialize in the intersection of psychology, cognitive neuroscience, behavioral economics, um, stuff like philosophy, sociology, anthropology. And history is a nice field that allows me to bring it all together. So there we go. That's why I went into history. And I'm really interested in rationality myself. And I haven't really seen ways of getting out the word to a broad audience about rationality and effective altruism, which is a practice of trying to do the most good with your dollars or donations for the sake of uh, improving the world. So Intentional Insights is a nonprofit organization that I started with my wife, Agnes Vishnevkin, and she has over 10 years of nonprofit professional expertise. So I provide more of the content experience. She provides the background management, and we have over 40 volunteers involved who do various things with the organization to get out the word about ways of improving your thinking and ways of giving more effectively in order to achieve your own goals in life. So it's a way of getting rationality and effective altruism, popularizing it to a broad audience. And that's a great uh, thing that we can do in popularization of this stuff. Mm -hmm. And so Jim has uh, kindly invited me on the show to be the first guest he interviews. And I'm really happy to be here. So thank you for the invitation, Jim. And you can find out more about Intentional Insights at in, intentionalinsights.org. So again, intentionalinsights.org. And both Jim and I decided to um, that we'll start the show by speaking a little bit about ourselves and our path to rationality. So I'll turn it over to Jim right now for him to talk a little bit about himself and how he came to rationality. And then he'll turn it over to me to do the same thing before sure. we launch into the meat of the show. Sure. So stay tuned. Well, you know, I've studied a lot of economics, and of course, economics teaches you how to be rational. Um, what it doesn't teach you, though, is about cognitive biases. So you learn, you know, the mathematics, you thought about the making decisions on the margin, about avoiding the sunk cost fallacy, and about evaluating decisions. And that's kind of how I, I was. I, I study microeconomics because it really sort of fit in with my brain. Then I, I became very interested in the singularity, and um, I studied the work of you know, Eliezer Yukowski, and he, besides doing a lot of work on the singularity, started a website, lesswrong.com, and I started following that, and a, what I got out of that website is looking at how the human brain goes wrong, and I realized that's sort of a very important addition to rationality. It's Before, when I just looked at microeconomics, I was kind of taking a straw man Vulcan view of what rational people should do, and then by, by incorporating cognitive biases, I'm like, okay, these are the kind of mistakes my brain makes, and here are ways that I can correct it. I just, I found it very interesting, and I've also been able to integrate it a lot into my teaching. When I do, for example, when I do the sunk cost fallacy, normally I would just teach it, but now I'm very careful to say, you know, there's some areas in which your brain is not going to do a good job, and this is one of them. So you can't trust your intuition, for example, when you encounter the sunk cost fallacy, and then I make the meta point, it's also very useful to know where you can't trust your intuition, and that'll help you make winning decisions and, and lead a better life. So um, how did you get interested in rationality? 
Um, I wonder if you can uh, explain to people your perspective on singularity and define uh, the sunk costs briefly for viewers who might not be know those terms. Okay. Well, sure. Uh, the singularity refers to a, a period in the future where we're either going to have extremely intelligent people through genetic engineering, probably, or computer chips in our brain, or have machines that are smarter than people. And the idea behind why this is so important is that you know we're a little bit smarter than chimps, but that's allowed us to create this entire civilization. If there was something as above us as intelligence as we are from chimps, that'll just radically change everything. And I just looking at the technologies, I think that's something we're likely to achieve in the next 50 years, maybe even the next 20. And this is just, I thought this was like the most important thing ever. And I, you know, I started looking into that. Um, the sunk cost fallacy refers to people's not wanting to forget about um, costs they've already incurred. So um, a good example where you can see where you shouldn't fall into the sunk cost fallacy is, I'll say you're at a restaurant and you buy an expensive dessert. And you know the dessert's not going to be healthy for you. And you know it's expensive, but you think it's going to be worth it because you're going to like the taste. That's an you know, entirely rational decision. You, you take a bite of the dessert and you're like, oh, I, just, I don't like the taste. But you can't return it. Now, a lot of people would say, well, I, I probably should finish the dessert anyways because I don't want to have wasted my money. But that's a deeply irrational decision. Think about it now. You're finishing the dessert, which you know is going to harm your health and which you won't enjoy so that you won't have wasted money, but you don't get that money back regardless of whether you finish the dessert or not. So the rational thing to do is to ignore the fact that you've paid for the dessert and optimize your life going forward. But people don't want to do that. Another example of the sunk cost fallacy, and my students always laugh when I mention this, is to say, you know, you've been dating someone for several years, but you think you're better off without them. But you say, but if I break up with them, all that time I've spent with them is wasted. The answer is, well, yeah, it's wasted, but it, it's wasted regardless of whether you stay with them or not. In the political sphere, we see the sunk cost fallacy when, you know, one candidate will say, well, you know, we should pull out of Afghanistan. And someone will say, but all these Americans have died in Afghanistan and we don't want their deaths to be in, you know, for nothing. And the response is, yeah, it's horrible that they died, but we can't bring them back to life by staying. So that is a sunk cost. It's a horrible sunk cost, but it's still a sunk cost and it should not affect our future decision making. So does that explain it, do you think? Yeah, thank you. That's great. Yeah. Thank you for clarifying that for the audience in case, you know, some folks might not know what those are. Yeah. And I, you know, I have to admit, I sometimes do fall for the dessert sunk costs. <laughs> <laughs> All right. Well, let me tell you about my background. So I got into rationality partially from my studies, mainly from my studies. So I was studying I told I mentioned the psychology, cognitive neuroscience, behavioral economics. I specifically uh, focused on studying how people achieve their long-term goals and find meaning and purpose in life. Kind of those are um, what are their emotions and historical contexts. So those were our three areas that I focus a lot on. Uh, oh, and also agency. How do people express agency, which is the ability to strategically achieve your goals. And 
as an individual person. So how do people express their agency in historical contexts? From this stuff, I discovered Less Wrong, and which Jim already talked about. And it's a really good website for people who are um, like me and Jim, who are really capable of digging through dense, complicated material and are excited by walls of text. Now, not all the people in the audience here might be excited by walls of text. <laughs> so keep that. So this is one of the reasons that uh, Jim decided to do the Future Strategist, to sh talk to people who are less excited by walls of text and really interested in getting information from audio pod podcasts like this one. And I mentioned that I found that Intentional Insights it has blogs and videos, books, apps, to convey this information in a broader manner about rationality. And so I really find that rationality helps me improve my life, helps, I mean, it helped me in so many new areas of life. For example, it helped me, I was, I used to have, or I still struggle with um, obsessive and compulsive eating, but rationality has really helped me notice my eating problems and get a hold of them, get a grip of them. So. Now, I am not, there's something called emotional reasoning, and it's something we will, Jim will talk more about on this podcast, but there are two systems of human thinking, roughly speaking, system one and system two. And system one is the emotional system. It's much bigger, more powerful than the system two, which is your intentional and rational system. But your intentional and rational system of thinking, it's slower, it's more effortful to use, but it's strategic and long-term oriented. Whereas your system one is very in the moment and very powerful. Your system two can over time train your system one to do what it wants um, in the long term, so over time. So I used my system two and I'm still using it to retrain my system one to not desire those desserts that Jim was talking about so much and uh, consider you know splitting them with a friend instead of eating the whole one myself or even not getting it if I feel full and if I do choose to get a dessert to eat it slowly and mindfully and not gobble it down so that's mindfulness is another good strategy for building your rationality as it allows you research has shown that it allows you time to turn on your more rational system two, as opposed to the more instinctive emotional system one. So mindfulness gets you that space, that distance that you need to make more rational, intentional decisions. So that's interesting. So you can imagine if, you, if someone has like a small amount of willpower, it's they don't have enough willpower to say, I'm not gonna eat the dessert at all, but they might have enough willpower to say, I'll eat it just slowly. But then once you start eating it slowly, it's time, you know, other subsystems of your brain can kick in to say, oh, come on, don't finish it. So it's like you, you're bootstrapping like two different types of willpower. So you have the in the moment willpower, which can get you, you know, to, to slow down enough for your, your system two willpower to kick in. Does that make exactly. Sense? Yeah, exactly. Exactly. And it's willpower is not research shows that willpower is not kind of just a diverse, you know, one sort of thing. It's, it's a combination of practiced behaviors. We do have uh, a focus that we need, kind of mental cycles, 
that's uh, empowers willpower. But willpower involves getting discipline, involves training a small, many, many, many small behaviors that allow you to become more disciplined and self-managed over time. So that involves things like noticing you're in a state of what's called acrasia. Acrasia is the state of doing what you don't want to be doing from your rational, cool perspective, but which your emotional self wants you to do, be doing. So if you're in a state of acrasia, you can notice it. Then you can distance yourself from it. You can slow yourself down when you're in a state of acrasia. And that allows you to kick in your other uh, aspects of your behavior. So more system two thinking, which will then allow you to perhaps not finish the dessert or take half it home and leave it for later. So various small strategies that eventually lead you to your goals. And this segues nicely into the second part of uh, what we wanted to talk about, which is being long-term oriented. And I'll hand it off to Jim right now to talk for a couple of minutes about the benefits of being long-term oriented and how that's tied to the title of the podcast, Future Strategist. Uh, so, well, sure. Well, first, let me take it um, even one more step back and why we have trouble being long-term oriented. Mm -hmm. I'm a really big fan of evolutionary psychology that we're really, we have caveman brains, but we live in a modern world and there's a, there's a big disconnect. So evolution, you know, operates slowly. It hasn't had nearly enough time to adopt us to the modern world. Now, if you're a caveman, there's limited value to thinking about the very long term, right? You can't store food. You're not going to keep money in the bank. It, it makes sense in terms of friends to cultivate friends for the long term. But it, it doesn't make sense to do a lot of long-term planning. Certainly a caveman who's giving all of his thought to the long term, you know, if there's limited thinking resources, he's more likely to be attacked by a lion compared to the guy who's always in the now. So suddenly we move to the modern world and now there's enormous value to being long-term oriented. I mean, this the magic of compound interest rates through being able to study something, you know, going to college. So when you're much older, you'll have these skill sets to worrying about your health, to not, to not smoke when you're in your twenties, because that increases the chance of you dying of lung cancer in your seventies or to exercise now thinking, well, the benefit to me will come over the next 30 years. So there's enormous benefits to being long-term oriented, but it's not, it's, not like, it's not deep in our brains. Our brains don't react that way, the way they would react to, say, a fear of lions. And so you kind of have to step from Most people have to think about, you know, force themselves to try to be more long-term oriented. And I think a lot of success in the modern world comes from people who are long-term oriented and, and, and people who aren't. You know, the, the teenagers who aren't long-term oriented, they don't study in high school, they abuse drugs, they end up in jail, they don't go to college. And the people who are long-term oriented, they're doing you know, much better in the world. So this is extraordinarily important to try to get your children to be more long-term oriented. I, I struggle with it with my son. I'm not quite sure of, of what to do. So that's, you know, that, that's part of, of how you can succeed. And I think then we apply it in terms of charity. This is where the title of my podcast comes from in part. I think there's an excellent chance that our species isn't going to survive. Um, I think that we're probably going to destroy ourselves or fall into some kind of trap. And in a saner world, this would be the primary focus of most public policy. Because the difference between us surviving and not is if we survive, 
we can go on to colonize other planets and we can spread out and go until the end of the universe. And if we destroy ourselves, that's it. And we might, you know, we might be alone, the only intelligent life form in our part of the universe. So the stakes are enormous, but people aren't really worried about that. And just, you know, nudging just, to, I know I'm not going to have a big effect on, on this, but if I could just nudge it a teeny little bit and slightly increase the odds of our species surviving, even by one in a billion, that's just, that's a worthy lifetime goal. That's a worthy thing to have done in my life. That's really inspiring, Jim. Oh, that's, I think that's really, that's, that's, that's a really great statement. And I think that really encapsulates very well while why the broadcast, why the podcast is called Future Strategist. That's a very strategic and intentional view of the future. And one of the reasons that Jim invited me to speak here uh, is because I'm a specialist in goal research and how we achieve our goals. So Jim spoke kind of from a broad human perspective. Let me speak now from an individual perspective he also talked about the perspective of individuals, but let me speak a little bit about the science of long term of goal achievement and how what it shows about how we achieve our goals. So it basically shows that if you want to achieve your own goals, if you want to succeed in life, you want to very much determine what your long term goals are. So the first step to succeeding in life is actually defining your long-term goals. And the research shows that people who have clear long-term goals are statistically much more likely to succeed in life. They're much more likely by all whole range of metrics, their well-being in terms of their happiness, their physical health, their emotional health, their financial health, their relationships, whatever metric you want to use, people are going to be more successful, much more successful. Um, well, let me not say much, that's a fuzzy term. Statistically, significantly, might quite a bit more successful if they define their long-term goals. And long-term goals intersects with uh, meaning and purpose in life. So your long-term goals shouldn't be, you know, build a house or get this job, it would be, defining what drives you in your everyday life activities. And scholarship and meaning and purpose, and I'm a specialist in meaning and purpose, describes the sense of meaning and purpose as that overarching, aspiring, long-term goal or set of goals that drives your everyday activities. I wrote the book, Find Your Purpose Using Science, which describes how you as an individual whether you are already an aspiring rationalist or you have not thought about this stuff ever at any range that can help you work through and figure out your own long-term goals and help you define what they are, what they mean for you. So after you define your long-term goals, the next step to achieving those long-term goals is connecting them to the projects that you're engaged with right now evaluate what you're doing in your everyday life. You know, your jobs, let's say you're talking about professional activities, your job, what you're doing in your job, let's say your relationships. So Jim mentioned the relationship at the beginning uh, of, uh, of the podcast. Are you doing 
in your relationship area, in your romantic relationship area, the things that will lead you to your romantic relationship goals. In your social area, do you have the right kind of social network to lead you to your long-term goals? Now, research shows that people who have a solid social network are much more likely to have high, higher health, so much more likely, meaning statistically more significant, likely to have better health, mental and physical health, and better success in various endeavors, various projects they take on. So, and a higher level of happiness, which in general, we all want a higher level of happiness. So, connected these long-term goals to what you're doing right now. If you find that some of what you're doing right now doesn't fit your long-term goals, you know, man up or woman up and cut those things out of your life because they don't fit your long-term goals. It would be hard, like Jim mentioned, it's hard to you know, break up with someone you've been seeing for a long time. But remember, and that person will not be right for you. If you determine that, that's up to you. Same thing for your job. Many people, another sunken cost fallacy problem is that people stay in dead-end jobs way too long. They just stay in that job. They don't try to find any other job. They don't try to, they just want to be safe. But that doesn't really help you achieve your own long-term goals. So a good rationality technique to use here is to imagine what you want the world to look like a year from now or three years from now. And think about what you can do to achieve that world that you want one year from now, three years from now, five years from now. And then take those steps, map out the steps that will lead you to that. Now that will both give you clarity and help motivate you. And that's what the research says. Other things that will help you achieve your long-term goals are writing down what your goals are going to be. So write them down, have a journal, have an electronic document, whatever you want, any sort of system that will let you write down your goals. That will help you reference them whenever you are in a moment of like, oh, you know, it's hard to do this stuff. Look back at your goals. That will help motivate you and that will help provide clarity on what you're doing. Then write down when you will do those goals. So don't let it be just a timeline that goes indefinitely into the future. Write down by when you want to accomplish certain aspects of your goals and make sure that you strive to accomplish them by that specific time. And then write down what support you will have from your friends, from your family, from other things to accomplish those goals. Also, write down what positive reinforcement you will give yourself for accomplishing certain goals. Humans, as Jim mentioned, are savanna creatures. We evolve in a caveman environment, and so we need positive reinforcement. We need to reward our system one for doing the things that will lead to system two achievements. We need to reward our emotional self for doing the things that will lead to our thinking self's success. So reward yourself well and remind yourself that you deserve those rewards. And you know, our brain is not a unified cohesive entity. It has many, many modules, it has many components. We're not a unified cohesive self. Though you know, we have various thoughts, feelings, sensations, behaviors, that aren't really under our conscious control. So be strategic about your brain and reward it well. 
to get to where you want to go. What this, kind of rewards do you use? What kind? Oh, so the rewards that I use are going out to meetings with friends. Um, I use, many people use food rewards, but that's not something I use because I have a problem with eating. So I use rewards besides going out to meetings with friends. I use rewards such as buying something uh, nice for myself. So for example, I recently um, achieved a, you know, a set of metrics that I used for myself that I decided, and I decided based on that achievement of those goals, that I'll buy myself a punching bag and gloves. So that, which cost about like $300, just not cheap. But that's, you know, I was waiting to, to achieve a certain set of goals that I set for myself until I bought that. And so now I got those goals and I bought the punching bag and it's been great. Except that um, I unfortunately hurt my knee when I was punching it. I tore my, you know, some muscles. Oh, yeah. so now, so now I can't use it for a bit, but I'm like, ah, oh, I had to go to the chiropractor. And yeah, anyway, that's a separate story. But um, I definitely am in really enjoying the punching bag. It was exactly what I wanted. And so that's, you know, one kind of reward that I have for myself. So yeah, so that's uh, long-term goals. And that's the science on long-term goals. So Jim, do you want to wrap? wrap up this section with well, your thoughts before we go to effective altruism. Sure. Let me just ask you about, I mean, Scott Adams, who's the creator of Dilbert, he's one of my favorite bloggers. And one of his major points is that it's better to have systems rather than goals. So interpreting, for example, for what I'm doing, he would probably say, you know what, it's, it's bad for me to have a goal. Let's say I want, my goal is to have 10,000 viewers per episode eventually. That's my, it'd be better for me to have a system where I say, at least once a week, I'm going to call someone interesting and ask if I can interview them. Because with systems, you, you don't have to worry about failing. Basically, you're, you're setting, his, his analogy is, try to find ways where you can pull the lever of a slot machine where it doesn't cost you very much. Because eventually you'll win. Rather than focusing on pulling it this time, I'm going to win because then you'll, you'll be disappointed. Now, I, I, I don't know if he's looked into the science of this like you have, but what would you say, I mean, how would you compare having a system, like my system's going to be, Every day I'm going to talk to a new friend or you know, at least once a month I'm going to make contact with someone who's been my friend or I'm going to try something new. Or for me, I've had a system for a long time of I would research new um, nutritional supplements and I would just keep looking and I would experiment with the ones that, that didn't have much of a health risk. So how would you compare systems versus goals? Yeah, so I hear what you're saying. Um, I think what is important when you're setting goals, and thank you for uh, describing that, is to make sure that the goals, whatever you do, is under your control. So getting 10,000 listeners to your podcast is not under your control. You can't control how people respond to it. Um, you can control what you do, and that's the crucial thing. You can control the kind of things that would be likely to lead you to your goals. So what Scott Adams describes is less of a system than really a goal. You have a goal of calling one interesting person a week and, you know, talking to that person and inviting that person on the podcast. That's uh, a goal that you have set for yourself that's under your control. So it's not under your control whether, again, you know, people listen, people choose to listen to the podcast. It can be 
what I'm what I do have concerns about systems because of what's called Campbell's law and Campbell's Campbell's law is basically the idea that um, event if we measure something by it, the measurement that we, we use to evaluate something will eventually become what we optimized for except uh, as opposed to the actual goal that we want to achieve so if your actual goal is to increase the number of listeners it might not be and you optimize for calling one per one interesting person a week it might not actually achieve that goal for you so the so systems have the tendency of not being sufficiently flexible i find for um if you want to achieve an external goal if you want to achieve an internal goal like if your actual goal is to call one interesting person a week that's mm -hmm. totally fine um but if your goal is to you know if your external goal is to optimize number of listeners a thing to do might be to you know, have a goal of each week sitting or each month sitting down and seeing if you're doing the right things that are under your control to get you the number of listeners that you want but the crucial thing is to orient toward goals that are under your control um so within your locus of control okay and that, that creates a bit of a challenge i mean one of my goals is longevity and obviously i, I don't have complete control of that i have some control over that but you know, is that, do you think that's a, a is that a, a reasonable goal to have in terms of motivating me to do behaviors or, or should I focus on other kind of metrics? I would say that it can be a goal you aspire to achieve. So you can aspire to do the kind of things that will bring you longevity. And that's certainly something I do as well. I want longevity and I aspire to do the kind of things that will bring me longevity. But saying that I want uh, to achieve the goal of longevity um, is that's a goal that's outside of my control. So when I actually think about and motivate, try to motivate myself and try to reward myself for the things that I do, it's very important to reward myself for the right things and to reward yourself for the right things. You know, um, for example, if you do exercises on your legs for the sake of longevity and then you have an accident and you can't use your legs anymore now that's not your fault that you had the that you had the accident you still took the right steps to do that kind of exercises that would bring you to longevity so you would you know if you set the goal of having good legs for the sake of longevity you would fail at the goal but if you have set the goal of doing the kind of things that would lead you to have good legs for the sake of longevity, you would succeed at that goal regardless of the accident. And the accident is outside of your control and you can't do anything about it. So it's better to be successful by focusing on the things that are under your control and not undermine your actual success and the things you want to do in your life by um, setting goals that are in, that are based on things outside of your control. What do you think of affirmations? For example, sometimes I detest it. I will say out loud, you know, my podcast will be successful. Mm -hmm. I mean, the, the cost, of course, is extremely low. And the theory 
the non-magical theory behind it would be by saying it out loud, systems of my brain will hear it and they might start working on ideas for making it more successful. So I might be more likely to get, you know, good thoughts of what I could do with my podcast. Or if I say I will live a long time, it, it, it's telling my brain I'm going to live a long time. And so my brain will be systems. My brain will be more able to reject the unhealthy dessert and it will be more tolerant of enduring pain when I'm exercising. Do you, do you think affirmations are, are a good strategy for achieving goals? Yeah, thank you for asking that question. That's the thing I actually talked about with a fellow rationalist, uh, Max Harms, who, um, by the way, if you want to check him out, he's a fellow Intentional Insights volunteer. He writes in probabilistic thinking, uh, intentionalinsights.org. He also wrote the book about called Crystal Society about uh, artificial intelligence, which oh, Eliezer Yudkowsky recommended very highly as like a really great um, fiction about artificial intelligence. It's the first fiction about artificial intelligence actually written from the perspective of an AI that develops. So really interesting stuff. And I talked to him about this very question about affirmations. And what we um, figured out is that there will be an aspect of, a, it depends on how affirmations are worded. So saying my podcast will be successful or, you know, anything like that, or I will live for a long time, triggers also a self-critical, a self-critic inside the brain that says, how do you know that? Is that true? Is that accurate? One of the things that a rationalist, um, that's a fundamental rationalist strategy is to ask yourself whenever you hear something to consider the alternative, to consider the, whether the alternative is true, because our brains tend to have a failure mode where we intuitively accept truth claims that are stated out loud that we get. And that is really problematic, even from the perspective, you know, Jim mentioned a, you know, what, what politicians say when they say things like, you know, blank is blank, or let's say um, there's no global warming. Now, the scientific evidence overwhelmingly points to global warming. But when someone says there is no global warming and they repeat it sufficiently, our brains tend to believe that because of a cognitive bias, a thinking error called the mere exposure effect. The mere exposure effect is a thinking error that leads to us believing information that has been repeated to us often. And because that information, we get ease with that information, it feels true even though it isn't. So, any rationalist, any aspiring rationalist like Jim and I and Max have a tendency to, whenever we hear truth claims, to say, well, consider the alternative. What would be the opposite of that to, in order to combat this problematic tendency? And when we say something like, you know, I will live to more than a thousand years or something like that, it in, to inherently triggers that uh, tendency that consider the alternative. So. What we figured out a better strategy is, is to say, I am oriented toward longevity, or I am oriented toward um, you know, this podcast being successful, or something like that. So it is an orientation, and that is fully true. You're oriented toward longevity, as am I. You're oriented toward this podcast being successful. And that's absolutely true. The consider the alternative part, you know, when that's triggered, we say, yes, is that true? 
you know, consider the alternative. I'm not oriented toward longevity. That's absolutely false. I am oriented toward longevity. I am oriented, and you are oriented toward the podcast being successful. So it's a more powerful way of saying, of conveying that same information, of having an affirmation like that without triggering any negative responses. Oh, I like that a lot. That's a very good practical hack. And you're right, I, I can see why if I say something, part of my brain will start fighting against it. So if I say I will live a long time, you're right, there will be a subsystem in my brain that starts evaluating and saying, but wait a minute, you might die of all these things relatively soon. And that could counteract the effect. So I, I really, I really like that. That's that's quite useful. Quite useful. You're hack. welcome. Yeah. So I think the next part of our of the podcast before we finish up we're going to talk a little bit about effective altruism yes so, jim would you like to take that and define effective altruism for us uh, sure well i mean my starting assumption is that most humans are very selfish we, we you know we care about our family and our friends but we most of us care very very little about complete strangers and an example i use in, in my microeconomics class which i, I stole from adam smith is imagine today two horrible things happen. The first is there was an earthquake in a country you never heard of and 100,000 people died. And you're watching the news and you know you really are sad. You're like, I got 100,000 fellow human beings died. You didn't know any of them, but, but still you're a decent person. The second is while you were cooking, you cut off the tip of your pinky finger. Now your mom calls you tonight and, and you're crying. And your mom's like, you know, darling, what, why are you crying? What happened? What do you mention? And when I give this example to my students, they all laugh and they all say, well, I, my pinky finger. And that's just how humans are wired. Most of us care far more about our tip of our pinky finger than the lives of 100,000 strangers. But we're not completely selfish. Most of us have a little bit of a desire to help strangers. And what we need to do is not waste that. We don't want that little bit of a desire, for example, to be, to be you know, used up doing something symbolically good, wearing a ribbon that signals a cause that we like, or doing something that just is a tiny amount of good, like donating money to an art museum so people of our social class could see a painting. So use that little bit of niceness in you to do the most good you possibly can. And I think that's the goal of the effective altruism movement. And I see two, basically two ways of doing that. The first is to do the maximum benefit per person that you can. So if you're gonna give $1,000, what's the most benefit you can per person? And just the way the global economy is set up, that probably means using that money to help one of the poorest of the poor. Because if someone's making a dollar a day, you know, and you're, you're an average American, you can really significantly improve their life. So, you know, you can't make the world a better place overall. I mean, most of us will never make the world 1% better, but most Americans can significantly improve the lives of a small number of human beings. You know, if someone's making a dollar a day and you, you do something through give directly and you give them one year's income, that's a lot. I mean, imagine being really poor and having a stranger give you one year's income. You can do an enormous amount of good. Or if you want to, another approach could be uh, giving money to something that fights diseases that affect poor people. 
usually for diseases that affect rich people, you know, there's a lot of money already in it. So if you're a middle-class American, you know, you're donating even $20,000 to diseases that affect rich people. That's, that's statistically going to save way under one life. But for diseases that affect poor people, not a lot of money goes into it. So things like malaria or, or something like, you know, um, parasites that just afflict poor people, you could donate a small amount of money for in insecticide-treated malaria nets or deworming, and you can statistically save a few lives. So this is, you know, in one way to look at it is say, isn't it pathetic that there are people so poor that a small amount of money could save their life and that money isn't being spent? But the optimistic way to look at it is, you know what, you can do an enormous amount of good without sacrificing very much. You know, by donating 10 or even 1% of your income, you can save a few lives and that's, that makes you a great person. Now, the other way of looking at EA, and this is how I tend to look at it, is to say, well, you know, is there are things that might destroy our entire species. And that would be so bad that just slightly reducing the effect, the chance of us destroying ourselves, that swamps everything else. And this is especially true if you give weight to people who might live in the future. So if our species does survive and we go on to colonize other planets, you know, trillions upon trillions of people will be born for every person alive today. So just a, a simple mathematical calculation. Let's say I can raise by one in a trillion the chances of our species surviving long enough to going on to, to colonize the universe. And that, you know, one in a trillion is a really small number. I probably could do that. Well, if there's a trillion times a trillion people who will exist if and only if we survive, then the expected number of lives I can save is a trillion lives, which is just so enormous that blows away any other charitable contribution I could make. So my own money, it, it goes to things like the Machine Intelligence Research Institute, which is de it's devoted to trying to come up with friendly artificial intelligence. And I, I, I'm sure there's other good charities. I just happened because of my last book. I know a lot about them, and I trust that they're being well run, that the charity is, is run basically by Elisha Yukowski. So I donate the small amount of money I donate to charity to that organization. I also figure some of my scholarship is kind of charitable-like because it you know, it, it, it spreads the word about this. And since my department, unfortunately, doesn't really like my research on the singularity, it kind of is more of a charitable donation than work since I don't really get work credit for it. But I have tenure, so I kind of, the cost isn't all that high for me, but it's a little bit there. So, but what do you, what do you think? What do you think about the difference of donating to help like poor Africans versus working on existential risks? Cool. Uh, thank you for, really for the introduction of effective altruism. I'm gonna, um, speak a little bit about some other areas of effective altruism and then get to the question. I think it's a really interesting sure. question. So, yeah, as Jim mentioned, effective altruism is an actual movement within, um, and there are thousands and thousands of people who are really passionate about really doing the most good per dollar. That's the point of effective altruism, really being evaluative and figuring out how we can do the most good per dollar. You know, we often don't think very carefully about how we spend our charitable money. You know, Americans give on average about 3.5% of their income to charity. About two thirds of that goes to religious organizations and one third of that goes to other organizations. So if we, and that's, you know, billions and billions and billions of dollars. If we are more intentional about how we spend that money, we can do so much good for the world. We can do 
we can have a world that's so much better than it currently is. If we really think very carefully about how we spend that money instead of just throwing it away to on um, causes that are less effective than they can be. Um, so here's a recent example I wrote about in Time magazine. So, uh, so your view, you might have heard about the Wounded Warrior Project nonprofit. And uh, it's famous, you can Google it, for standing lavishly on executive salaries, on your first class tickets for uh, its staff, for banquets, and just get really, instead of helping veterans, which is what it's supposed to be doing, it was actually creating Potemkin-like programs, showpiece programs for veterans that were really oriented toward marketing as opposed to helping veterans. It's a horrible thing, I think, that this money that they were supposed to use to help veterans was spent on just you know getting money for themselves and uh, staff salaries and so on instead of focusing on helping veterans. It's really, really bad. And so that is the kind of thing that we need to watch out for. It's a really bad thing. And you know, there are other problematic nonprofits that just don't do very much for um, the causes they serve. That's one problem. Another problem is uh, organizations that are that tell you great stories but don't have much of an impact in people's lives. And here's one that you might have heard of, and uh, it's I will I will say it's a controversial statement that I'm about to make. So. You might have heard about the Make-A-Wish Foundation. Now, in a way, it's a, you know, sounds like a great thing. You know, get a dying child a wish for a day. For example, go to Disneyland with her family or, you know, be fly in the back of a fighter pilot, um, a fighter jet. That's great for if you're thinking of, you know, what's, that's a nice story. You really want that story, but honestly, that costs a ton of money. So, you know, uh, all expense paid vacation to Disneyland, you know, that's probably about $10,000 or something like that. Now, by comparison, you, and that's just one day for a child who's dying anyway, that's terrible, but think about the comparison. So Jim mentioned against Malaria Foundation, which is one uh, effective altruism charity. Now at the cost of less than $3,000, it saves a child's life. A whole life, think about that. So for $10,000, you can have one child have a nice day, or you can have over three children have a whole lifetime of nice days. Imagine that, how much more powerful is the donation to Against Malaria Foundation going to be and the return on investment for your dollar? How much more good will you do if you do that? So again, this is controversial, but it's really something you need to think about if, when you're making your donation decisions. So that's the kind of things that the effective altruism movement focuses on thinking about, thinking about really hard how we can improve the world. And there are several areas in effective altruism. So Jim mentioned some of them. There's uh, an aspect of effective altruism that foc that's focused on saving as many lives, human lives, as possible in the moment. 
And that uh, you would find through organizations such as GiveWell, so which provides in-depth research reports on, um, it, it's an EA meta charity. A meta charity is one that organizes, that helps other charities. So an EA meta charity, that's GiveWell, it's an evaluator. Another evaluator is the life you can save. So, and givewell.org, then there's the life you can save.org. Another organization is giving what we can.org. So that focuses on having, uh, making a 10% pledge to give 10% of your income to charity, uh, effective charities. And 80,000 hours, which helps people figure out what are the best careers they can have to impact the world positively. So Jim mentioned that he, in his work, donates a little bit of his money, but he donates time more than money, and he donates his scholarship more than money. That's something I do as well uh, with Intentional Insights. I don't get much credit at all for scholarly credit for running Intentional Insights or for publishing articles and time on this stuff. So I donate a lot of my time uh, to EA charities, to EA causes. Now, Intentional Insights itself is an EA meta charity devoted to popularizing and spreading the message about EA broadly. And so this podcast is one way of doing that. And so Jim mentioned the Against Malaria Foundation, that's an important one. Give Directly is another really important one. Just wanna give a little bit more context on what it does. What Give Directly does is it transfers money directly from you to poor people in Kenya. These are people who live in about $0.65 a day, so 65 cents. And it transfers that money directly to them, uh, and it's about $1,000 per family. And it lifts, what it does is it focuses on lifting a whole village out of poverty. So it goes to a village, it selects certain villages, villagers, then it gives them that amount of money, $1,000 per family, and it that is enough money to lift a whole family out of poverty, and then the whole village is lifted out of poverty. That's a wonderful thing. Think about lifting a whole village out of poverty through your money, through your donations. Now, so uh, Give Directly saves a life directly for about $15,000, but it has a lot of indirect benefits through lifting a whole village out of poverty. So if you want to most directly save a human life, that's against Malaria Foundation, for the cheapest, the most cost-effective. If your goal is to lift people out of poverty and have many other indirect benefits, give directly would be a good orientation for your money. And that's one area of effective altruism. That's helping human beings in the moment. Another area is animal helping animals. So that's the second area. And your best bet would be to check out Animal Charity Evaluators, which is an EA meta charity that evaluates animal charities and how they can help animals uh, survive. The focus of that is on ending family farming, uh, I'm sorry, factory farming, which is a great cause of animal suffering. The last one that Jim mentioned is helping future human beings. Helping future human beings is a third area. And there are two important charities, meta charities that are working on this area. You have MIRI, that uh, the Machine Intelligence um, Learning Institute that um, Jim already mentioned. 
And the other one is the Future of Humanity Institute. The Future of Humanity Institute is another one that's exploring, it focuses mostly on artificial intelligence, but also on other risks. So things like pandemics, things like um, cyber warfare and so on. So that's one that if you folk think about other things besides uh, artificial intelligence, that is something you might want to check out. So that's the overarching sphere of effective altruism. And there's a lot of people who are really committed to effective altruism focusing on who it what it does. You might have heard about the philosopher Peter Singer. He's a prominent effective altruist. Another prominent philosopher is William McCaskill. And uh, there are very prominent people uh, who you probably heard about, such as Dustin Moskowitz, the co-founder of Facebook, who are passionate about effective altruism and what it does, and so on. And so there are many people involved in this field. So consider it, check it out. Effectivealtruism.org would be the first venue to check out. And I named some other direct, some other EA meta charities that you'd want to check out for uh, those topics. Now, the specific question that Jim asked me was the comparison of giving to current human beings versus giving to future human beings. And that's a really tough question. What my thoughts on this are is that we don't have sufficient information to know what is the best orientation to take. So whether Miri is doing the utmost good, whether the future humanities of Humanity Institute is doing the utmost good to help future human beings. And my personal value set is to I value current human beings more than future human beings. And that's a values question. You know, uh, you can value present human beings, you can value animals, you can value future human beings and future animals. Let so me ask you about that though. I mean, you presumably place value on human beings that you'll never meet, right? Mm -hmm. the, the starving yes. children in Africa. Why do you care more, if you're never gonna meet someone, why does it matter more if they're separated by geography or if they're separated by time? Great question. Uh, so it's a matter of who I can help and who I can empathize with and uh, a matter of um, logical consistency. So let me clarify that. So I have, I do care about future human beings, but at a lower level than current human beings. And why is that? Well, if I cared about future human beings a lot, um, my focus would be on things like, let's have, more babies or something like that. Let's have more future human beings, like optimizing the number of future human beings. And I have a concern about that for logical consistency sake, because you know there are also problems with let's say population growth. So something that's an area I'm concerned about, you know, population growth and how we will feed a lot of people. Uh, so I for myself, I like charities that do things like distribute condoms in Africa that help prevent future human beings who are not going to be suitable for um, our society, so who are going to harm society as a whole. So for logical consistency, if I cared about future human beings and their existence, then it would be somewhat logically inconsistent for me to support 
population um, limit, limit, limitation efforts. Now, I want to help current human beings, which is why I support things like Give Directly and Against Malaria Foundation, but I also am concerned about human society as a whole. And the societies in Africa and so on, in a number of countries in Africa, I shouldn't say all African countries, but in a number of countries in Africa, they are overpopulated. They well, have too many people. So that's a concern I have. So that's, yeah. Let me ask you a, a difficult question. Now, as I'm sure yeah. you'd agree, the hardest thing to do as a rationalist is to change your mind in response to new information. That's what you're supposed to do. Mm -hmm. the, probably the biggest scientific breakthrough of the last few years has been gene editing technology of CRISPR. And that apparently is gonna make it much, much easier to grow a lot of food. So have you updated these beliefs in the last few years, saying to yourself, you know what, overpopulation, it's not as big a deal now, it's not as big a concern now as I would think it would have been five years ago because we have this great new technology. So have you changed your views? I mean, most people don't change their views, you know, so you wouldn't be, you know, it's, it's not a, a, exceptional if you haven't. But have, has this new gene editing technology caused you to change your views and give more weight to, yeah, there should be more people, at least more than I previously thought? Yeah, I hear what you're saying. So it's, uh, I, have, I have never been concerned about the food issue so much. You know, I don't, I'm not a Malthusianist, so I don't, I'm not actually concerned. I mean, the United States actually destroys some food that it could ship overseas. We can always grow more food. I'm much more concerned about infrastructure. So the availability of infrastructure, spread of diseases, pandemics, you know, shanty towns are a huge problem in a number of countries across Latin America and especially Africa. And they exist because people move from rural areas where they can't support themselves to cities and they can't find the kind of jobs that would be necessary to support themselves. Then, you know, there's a problem of, um, not a problem, I mean, there's an issue of people migrating to developed countries to mm -hmm. find jobs. And then, you know, what do you do in terms of open borders? How do you handle that? I think there is, in some countries, there's a, there is an overpopulation and it's not for me about food issues. It is about, um, it is about things like how do you develop the infrastructure? I actually have updated my beliefs on this topic after reading some um, analysis by Givewell on overpopulation. And some, um, I was not so sure about supporting against Malaria Foundation Give Directly before reading this, before reading these materials, which showed that uh, overpopulation is not as much a concern as I had previously thought. So uh, this is something I updated my mind on within the last couple of years after reading some information by Kipwell. Mm -hmm. I, I don't think overpopulation is likely to be a problem because I see a lot of new technologies or technologies that have high fixed costs but low marginal costs. That means things, it's like software where it takes a lot of time to get the first copy but once you have the first copy, it's really cheap to make multiple copies. Mm -hmm. And with that kind of technology, you want a really big human population because then you know, you'll, it'd be worth it to develop these, these high fixed cost technologies and then you can spread it out. You can give it to even poor people. And we see today one of the biggest technological changes of the last decade is that poor people are getting smartphones. And that I think we're gonna see more, more kind of applications of this. So I actually think the world is underpopulated. I think 
the average human would be better off if we doubled the population of Earth. I think I would agree with you in the future when those technologies are more available. Right now, um, I care about the suffering of those people who are in shanty towns and but are they suffering? I mean, if you gave a, if you asked how happy they were, I really don't know. But it wouldn't surprise me if there's a lot of very poor people in Africa that do better on happiness measures than the average American does. I don't know. I'm just guessing. But happiness is a I'm sure you know it's a weird thing, and there can be very poor people who still smile who are still extremely happy. Yeah, I hear you. They can be. It might be the case that they're happy, but. If they're asked, are the conditions overcrowded, or wouldn't you be better off if they were less crowded, uh, then the answer would be yes. And there's quite yeah. actually, so the GiveWell write-up shows that currently overpopulation is a concern. So the analysis on this topic shows that it is a concern, and it will likely become less of a concern in the future, but right now it is a concern. So it's a matter of not you know whether the current population is good or bad but when will it be wise to have more of a population uh, when will it be wise to have more human beings you know there's a reason that china went ahead because of its one child policy because more of a population wasn't draining its uh, economy there's i mean there are obvious costs to it but there are benefits as well and um, from a historical perspective, so studying the, you know, the countries in Africa, they have been harmed quite a bit by large populations. Um, an example might be the Arab Spring right now, actually. So one of the reasons why the Arab Spring occurred is because there was a large population of young men who did not have jobs that they were happy with. And that was a, an overpopulation problem. Well, well let me say, as an economist, I think it, let me say, it's, I think it's a mistake to think there's a set number of jobs, and if you have more people than jobs, you'll have unemployment. I don't think there's necessarily a relationship between the population and the number of jobs. I mean, take a city like Hong Kong or Singapore, extremely high densities, cities, very low rates of unemployment. Mm -hmm. I, know, I hear you. Uh, so it's a matter of, for the social structure that was in place at the time that was too too many people for the socio-economic political structure so it was not that's well a hard organized. question that knowing, I, that's not obvious to me that they would be better off there'd be fewer revolutions if they had a lot fewer people i mean i guess one exception is a country that has a lot of mineral a lot of like oil and they have no other economic basis and then they're just dividing the revenue but that's sort of a parasitical economy. But if you have an economy where most of the wealth is generated through labor and capital rather than extraction, I, I don't think it's clear that too many people are, you know, you have too many people you're doing harm to that. I don't think we, we have that, we have necessary evidence that that's what's happening in countries. Well, in any case, this is, you know, I think we're getting into a little bit of a tangent. Um, yeah, so I wanted to, so I think it's kind of a, uh, a weighing off for individual people as your viewers uh, or listeners in this case, decide where they want to spend their money and what they care about. Uh, it's you know where they place their value sets. And I think values are a tricky thing. You know, what do people value? Do they value current human beings? Do they value current sentient beings when they would you know, care about 
the animal charity evaluators? Uh, do they value uh, future human beings and animal beings? So that's something to look at MIRI and Future of Humanity Institute. But more upstream of that is just the idea of focusing on doing the most good you can with your dollar. And I think Jim had it right when he was talking about evaluating and looking at yourself and thinking about how much good you can do. So think about you being an individual, you know, one of 600 billion plus people on this earth. You can, if you donate to a local, you know, I don't know, uh, art museum, as Jim mentioned, donate 20,000, then people like you of your socioeconomic class who tend to frequent art museums can have a little bit better art. If you donate $20,000 to uh, give directly, then you will both, then you will lift so many 20 people out of poverty. And that's probably enough to lift a, more than a village out of poverty. And even if you donate a dollar to give directly, you, you, you know, that's uh, a lifting of people out of poverty. And same thing against Malaria Foundation, a bed net costs $3. And they're under $3,000 is enough to save one life. So, and think about the same things for uh, animal charity evaluators. Uh, if your values lie in animal beings, so sentient beings, you can really save a lot of animals that way. Or future beings, if your values lie that way, how much benefit can you bring to saving future lives? I think the vision that Jim described, if that's what you care about, future lives, that's a great vision. You can save, you know, thousands of human beings, thousands of sentient beings, animals, also through donations to the future of humanity and Miri. These are very effective donations and they will go a long way. And you should feel great about yourself for giving these donations. Yeah, I would say the key thing to do is recognize trade-offs in your charitable giving. Almost everyone does this when they're buying for themselves. You know, this: if I buy this pair of sneakers, that, that's money I could have spent going out to dinner. If I go on a vacation, I could have used that money to remodel my house. But a lot of people don't take into account of trade-offs when they make charitable decisions. They don't think giving this money to this art museum, that's money that could go somewhere else. So. We don't like to think about trade-offs. We don't like to think that if I donate money to this place, it could have been used to save a life. Or you don't like to think if I give money to Make-A-Wish Foundation, that's money that could go somewhere else. We, it's, it's, it's hard to think about trade-offs involving human life, but not thinking about a trade-off doesn't make it go away. It's still always going to be there. That's a really insightful point, yes. Uh, trade-offs and trade-offs in giving, I think, is one thing. And then even trade-offs in terms of luxury spending, you know, you can choose to remodel your house or you can choose to spend some of that money on helping other people improve their lives. And that's your choice. No one is making you do it, making you choose one thing or the other. It depends on your values. Do you want to, you know, uh, like purchasing a Chanel bag uh, is like, it costs the same thing as a human life. It's about $3,000. Uh, or, you know, purchasing a BMW for $50,000, that's, uh, that's how many, 17 human lives. So yeah, think, about that, think about it in those terms. You know, you can also purchase a, older, a less fancy luxury car 
and use the difference to save human lives. If you if you purchase, you know, uh, a Ford or a Toyota, you know, Fit, that's twenty thousand dollars. So that's thirty thousand dollars difference, and you can so you can purchase a Toyota Fit and also ten lives if you donate that to Against Malaria Foundation or lifting a whole village out of poverty if you give to give directly. What you're saying is completely accurate. It's also emotionally disturbing when you start measuring everything you buy in terms of African children. And you, it's, 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 hard to, it's hard to accept that, even though it is true. Yeah, I think it's, it is definitely hard to accept. And this is one of those things that um, rationality teaches us to accept that, you know, everything that can be destroyed by the truth shall be. And this misconception um, is something that is true, that it's not something we see, but it's always true, that it's all, it can all be measured in terms of the good you can do. So that's why people do things such as take the giving what we can pledge or the life you can save pledge. Both of those are pledges you can take. And I think the life you can save pledge starts at 1% and goes higher for people with higher income. And the giving what we can pledge is a set pledge at 10%. And it's whatever you decide is the right amount of money to charity and you're just settled on that amount of charity and give to effective causes. So that helps you feel good about what you're doing as that's the right appropriate amount and spend the rest of the money on yourself. Okay, yeah. Yeah, so I think right now we wanted to go orient toward wrapping up and Jim and I are going to share about what we learned and what we thought about the con this conversation and, um, and then we'll close off. So I can start. Sure. I thought that this was a really good conversation to learn, um, to discuss various aspects of charity and think about being strategic in the long term. I like the examples that uh, Jim provided from his economic background. You know, the, um, I like the sunken costs fallacy with the cake. I haven't thought of it with a dessert. I haven't thought about it in that way. And that will be helpful for me, a helpful way of thinking about things. More broadly, I liked his numeracy approach, his mathematical approach to counting things. You know, um, being aware of the value of shifting the likelihood of human survival by one in a billion. That's a really powerful way of thinking about it because there are six billion people in the world right now. And so even if you apply it to the current, uh, to the current society and you think that you're likely to make a difference of you know, one in a billion, well, that's six, that's six times more than the average Joe on the street, let's say. So you're six times, you can, if, if you value that, you can call yourself six times better than the average person on the street if you think of it in those, if you think, if you value the survival of the human civilization. And just thinking in terms of the true, you know, the thousands and thousands of people you can save in the future, that's also a valuable way of thinking about it. So just think about the difference that your efforts make in mathematical terms. I think that's helpful and reveals Jim's mathematical economic perspective that I found helpful for me. So thank you, Jim. Okay. Well, thank you. I've also enjoyed the conversation. What was most useful to me personally about it was um, 
your your hack for um affirmations where and instead of my saying you know I will be healthy I should say I will be oriented towards health and this way I'm not lying to myself but I'm still signaling to my brain of what I want it to do and so when I'm sleeping my brain will be thinking about ways of making me healthy without thinking like oh is he really being honest with me when he's claiming something that he knows might not actually be be true and um, I appreciate you explaining uh, your organization it's it's very brave of you you're not tenured yet are you so no, that's no, a, a, those outside of academia don't realize this is a real big sacrifice. I mean, for me as a tenured professor to start a podcast is, you know, there's, there's very little cost, but for you to start a whole organization where you don't have tenure that, I mean, that you're, you're really, there's a large expected sacrifice there. And I, I congratulate you on what you're doing. And I, I admire, I admire your courage. Thank you very much, Jim. Yeah. I think that to me, when I thought this through, I thought about what world do I want to live in? You know, do I want to live in a world where I want to wait seven years for tenure? Or do I want to live in a world where I start this now? And the kind of difference in the world that I can make by starting it now, I mean, you know, if I can get word out about rationality and effective altruism and, you know, thinking about these things more effectively to a broad audience now, then I want to do that. And I want to put my efforts into these areas. And it's a, it's a trade-off as, you mentioned as all trade-offs are and I'm taking a risk and I recognize that but the, the benefit you know of getting a piece published in Time magazine and letting a lot of folks know about this stuff or doing these podcasts and doing this work in general that is my way of being an effective altruist. Yeah and I, I think for a lot of people we, we live in systems where we recognize there's socially crazy incentives like in, in academia writing an article, publishing it in an obscure magazine, but it's an academic you know, article that you know no one will read. That counts for far more in our profession than getting something published in a top magazine. That's just ridiculous and insane, but most people, especially untenured people, play along with the system. They'd rather put a thousand hours into an article they know no one will ever read if they can put peer-reviewed than get an article somewhere where lots of people will read. And, and I admire you for saying, no, I'm going to do what's socially efficient. And this is something people can generalize. You know, think with, you know, with almost all jobs, there's stuff that you're doing that you know is just kind of crazy. Maybe, you know, you don't want to lose your job, but maybe there's ways you can do it. You know, just occasionally I'll do what's right in my job. I'll, I'll function in my job against the self-interested incentives and I'll do what's socially efficient. And if everyone did a bit of that, that would be that, you know, that's a form of effective altruism as well. And that could make the world a lot better place. I think that's really insightful. Yes, doing the thing that you know is going to be socially beneficial is very appropriate and I I would love for there to be a way of socially recognizing that and rewarding it. So we talked about, you know, systems and I think systematizing and being able to have a record of your effective altruist actions would be great mm -hmm. if there could be, you know, a website of notable things. Oh, this is a thing I did. I didn't, in my job, you know, like for, let's say, a used car salesman, I chose not to screw this customer and tell the customer, you know, oh, this car has a problem here and uh, the customer had an opportunity to buy it or not buy it. But you, you were honest and you were open and you didn't have the customer cursing you later when they already found this out, but you, you, you made a profit. So this is... And there are so many other instances where you can just be honest in your 
job and more socially efficient. So orient toward the benefit of the social good. It would be great if this could be recognized and this could be talked about. Yeah, I yeah. agree. Okay, well, thank you. It's been a very enjoyable conversation.